Habits and Health, Episode 78. Welcome to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today is Jeff Chilton. How are you, Jeff? Tony, nice to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And here is in British Columbia, you were just telling me. That's right. I live on Vancouver Island, a small community out on the west coast of the island. It's actually the surf capital of Canada. <laughs> wow. So for Surfing. anyone who, maybe anyone who doesn't know anything about British Columbia, what is it famous for? I guess a couple things, one of which is you've got lots of mountains so you can ski. It's very oriented towards outdoor recreation. The other thing that we have here that I consider to be very important is we still have wild salmon. So we are a culture here that eats a lot of seafood. The mm -hmm. natives in this area, their whole society was based around salmon, which mm -hmm. they not only fished for in season, but they also dried it and stored it for the winter. So those two things I would say are some of the most important things about British Columbia. This episode, we're gonna dive into the world of mushrooms. We're gonna find out a lot more about mushrooms and it's a fascinating topic. How did you get into all this in the first place? I grew up in Washington State. I grew up in this ecosystem out here and it is green out here, Tony. In fact, Washington State is called the Evergreen State because we have vast expanses of evergreen forests. And we also have a lot of lakes and rivers and it rains a lot out here so it keeps everything green and so as I was growing up I had mushrooms all around me it's one of the best places in the world for wild mushrooms and then when I went to university in the late 60s my field of study was anthropology and I just love the idea of other cultures how they organize themselves their customs their languages and at the same time as you can imagine, the University of Washington had a mycology department. Now, mycology is the study of fungi. Mushrooms are a part of that very large kingdom of fungi. So I put the two together, actually, and studied the use of mushrooms for food, for medicine, and in shamanic rites. But once you leave university with a degree in anthropology, it's not like there's jobs out there waiting for you. I decided at that point, because of my interest in mushrooms, that I wanted to learn how to grow mushrooms. So I went to the only mushroom farm in Washington State, got a job, very large farm, growing 2 million pounds of what we call the button mushroom every year. I got a job. I was there on this farm for the next 10 years, wow. literally living with mushrooms. And mushrooms is something that it seems to me most people know very little about and certainly have no idea how, how important it is to the planet and the vast number of different types of mushroom and so on. I mean, how many types of mushroom are there? Do you know? 
oh, there are hundreds of thousands of species. And what's interesting about it is this kingdom of fungi and this, what we would call mushroom space, it's divided into two parts. One part is what we call perfect fungi, and those are our fungi that will produce a mushroom. And then the other side is made up of the molds, which are also fungi. And most people, to some degree, are more familiar with molds because they've occasionally got out that loaf of bread and went, ah, what's that growing on my bread? That's a mold. And the difference, that's called an imperfect fungus. And the difference is that it does not produce a mushroom or what we would call a fruiting body. And just to get us off on the right foot here, this organism that we call a mushroom has three, what I would call plant parts. Mushrooms do not have seeds. Okay, so they don't have seeds. Tony, how am I going to grow a mushroom? I don't have a seed to plant. Well, mushrooms have spores. In nature, these spores will float off, land on the ground, land in wood when conditions are right. In other words, when moisture is high enough, Mm -hmm. those spores will germinate into a very fine filament called a hypha. And when multiple of these hyphae come together and fuse, it will create a network. And this network of these hyphal strands is called mycelium. Now, mycelium is the vegetative body of a mushroom. And we normally don't see it because it is underground. It's embedded in its substrate like that piece of wood or that log. So we Mm. don't see the mycelium. And when conditions are right, that mycelium will put up what we call a fruiting body, which is a mushroom. And Mm. the mushroom will go through various stages of development to the point where it's grown up. The cap is there. You see a standard mushroom form. Under that cap are gills. The gills produce spores. Now we have a completion of this life cycle. And this is super important that we've got three parts here, three stages, spore, mycelium, and mushroom. You can think of the mycelium to some degree like a root structure. It's the actual body of this organism. You can see it if you're harvesting a mushroom and you can pull out the mushroom and look in the ground where it's coming out of and you'll see these white strandy thread-like filaments there, that's the vegetative body. We're walking all the time around and we never notice until all of a sudden we go, oh, look, a mushroom. Where'd that come from? The body of this organism was underground and it's been there for who knows how long. But when we notice, it's because this organism that we call a mushroom has reached a certain size to where now we notice it. Because we maybe are walking down the same path day after day and we never see it, but it's been there slowly developing and all of a sudden it reaches a size where we go, whoa, where did that come from? And you know how it is, you you think, must have come up overnight. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's been there for a while. So if someone takes that mushroom out, how quickly will it regrow again, just the mushroom part of it? Generally speaking, this mycelial body is perennial. As long as there is sufficient food for it to consume, it Mm -hmm. will 
stay in the same place and grow outward until it reaches a point where, oh, there's no more food, so the mycelium will stop. And ultimately, if the food source gets consumed and is gone, this mycelium will die off. But basically, as long as that's there, every year in season, up will come a mushroom. And this is why if you talk to a wild mushroom hunter, oh, where'd you get your mushroom? Sorry, I can't tell you. Secret spot. Hunting mushrooms, in a way, is like a treasure hunt. Right. And a choice mushroom for many is a treasure. So much of the world has been urbanized in the last century, and so there's a lot less forests and woodlands and so on. So does that mean there's been a lot of species of mushroom have been lost? Let me give you an example of that in the... Oh, in the 1800s, in Europe, they harvested 200 tons, <coughs> 200 tons of truffles. Today, the amount of truffles they harvest is 10 tons. Wow. Now, what happened? Over-harvesting? Actually not. What happened was the forests where the truffles grow, and the truffle grows in conjunction with tree roots, primarily mm -hmm. oak, those forests have been cut. And even today, a lot of those truffles that they harvest come from oak plantations where they have put this fungal mycelium onto the roots and then planted these oak trees. And it takes probably 10 years before it gets established to the point where it can produce a truffle. So habitat destruction has really been the issue. And it's interesting because that's the same issue we face all along the west coast of North America with the salmon mm -hmm. used to have massive runs from California to Alaska. Today mm -hmm. in California, minimal. Oregon, Washington, yeah, minimal. They have places now where they grow them and send them out to sea. British Columbia, we're slowly losing our salmon every year because of habitat destruction of their spawning grounds. Right. And you touched upon earlier in when you started talking about mushrooms, one of the things that you were studying was about the medicinal properties of mushrooms. Is that something that you're still quite into? Oh, my company supplies mushroom extracts to the nutritional supplement industry and to the functional food industry. And, and I've been doing that since 1989. I established my business, Namex, in 1989 at a time when really nobody in the North American supplement market had mushroom products. Many herbal companies, all of the green herbs were there, but not any mushrooms. So that was very new to the industry. So I spent all the 90s essentially producing educational materials, telling people these are herbs that have been used in traditional Chinese medicine for thousands of years. You really need to put them into your product line. It, and so it's been a long journey, so to speak. It's so interesting because when I went to the mushroom farm in 1973, classical Western nutritionists said mushrooms had no medicinal value, no a food value. The reason they said that 
was because they're low in calories. In that decade, low-calorie food was a non-food. Right. Now we look at it different. Mushrooms are high in protein, 20 to 40%. They lack one essential amino acid. They're high in carbohydrate, but the carbohydrates are slow-acting carbohydrates like mannitol, trehalose, mushrooms. A lot of that carbohydrate is fiber. Right. They're feeding our microbiome. It's a really nutrient-dense food, good level of B vitamins, B1, 2, and 3, high in potassium and phosphorus. It's just an excellent food. And I'm always telling people, look, the first thing you should do if you're thinking about consuming mushrooms in some way is put them into your diet. It's, it's a really fabulous, I, I call it the missing dietary link. And if you look out at Asia or Europe, they've been eating many different mushroom species for thousands of years. And in fact, large studies that they've done out in Asia, where they ask people about their diet, and they have seen that people that have mushrooms in their diet live longer than people who don't. Believe that. I think it's a fabulous longevity food. You mentioned that there are so many different types of mushrooms. So how would someone know which are the most appropriate ones to eat for them? I think the main thing is your local market. I never advocate that somebody goes out and collects mushrooms and then decide they're going to eat them because you have to have it properly identified. For one, most of those mushrooms don't taste good. It's like going out there and grazing on plants you don't know about and you're eating them and they don't taste good at all. It's the same with mushrooms. Most of them mm -hmm. do not taste good. But there are, let's just say 25 or so wild mushrooms that taste really good. And so that's why you have so many wild mushroom hunters out there that are going out every fall in the season to collect these mushrooms because it's just a fabulous food. It's free. And in fact, this is really interesting too, Tony. In the 1700s in the UK, they called mushrooms poor man's meat. Wow. In supermarkets in England, typically there's only there's not a very wide range. From what I can remember, there's three or four different types of mushrooms usually. Yeah. The UK's got a very robust industry, mushroom industry for the button mushroom, which, right. you're, which you primarily see. And they call it the button mushroom because they harvest it at a very immature stage. <clears throat> and the reason they do that is because it gives it a good shelf life. Right. I like the button mushroom. That's what we were primarily growing on the mushroom farm that I worked on. It's a very good mushroom. It does have functional qualities as well. But now in North America, we have at least another six species that are being cultivated that you'll find in our market. You've got oyster mushrooms, maitake mushrooms, shiitake mushrooms, lion's mane. So you can get a much broader selection now of mushrooms. And in China, which I visit all the time, they've got probably 12 to 20 different species that they eat over there. Mm. A lot of people don't know this, but China produces 90% of the world's mushrooms. Wow. They produce 90% of everything else too, but... <laughs> <laughs> and so is it quite a staple in their diet in many Chinese homes? It is. It's the same there as a lot of other places, depending on the species. 
Some of the mushrooms will be more expensive than others. Just like over here, boy, if you look for a button mushroom, it's relatively inexpensive. I don't know, $5 a pound, maybe something like that. But some of the others are $10, $15 a pound. Even in China, they have that. So again, it's just, uh, it's price dependent, but they do, in Asia, they've been consuming lots of mushrooms much longer than we have. It's a pretty much staple in the diet. When we go over there, where there's constantly mushrooms in the food that we're eating, of course, and other parts of the world too. You look at Eastern Europe, you look at France, Italy. For some reason, we're UK and North America have been behind the curve and we're just catching up. And I just, again, consider it the forgotten food, the, a missing dietary link. And I think it's important for people to put mushrooms into their diet. In, in the last year, I've watched a couple of documentaries on mushrooms. I can't recall the titles right now. I've, there Was it Paul Dennett or something? He was... Well, I think um, you're thinking of Fantastic Fungi. That was probably oh, the movie. Yeah, that, you, that was one of them. Yeah. And I also read a book about mushrooms and... Yeah, I was just astounded by some of the facts that I was hearing, both in the documentaries and in the books. And yeah, it's, yeah there are so many benefits from eating mushrooms on a regular basis. Yeah, and look, we talked earlier about the different parts of this fungus mushrooms and their mycelium. That mycelium is breaking down organic matter. Think about all of the plant matter every year, perennial plants, leaves, branches from trees, you have all of this organic matter out there. If there weren't organisms to decompose that and repurpose that, we'd be up to here in all of that plant matter. And fungi in general and their mycelium is breaking that down. They're part of this whole cycle of decomposition, repurposing all of the organic matter back into humus for plants to utilize further. So it's part of the natural cycle. And it's interesting because we're learning so much more about microorganisms in general. And mm. they're out there underfoot. We don't notice them because we can't see them. Mm. So it's an invisible group of organisms that's doing all of this wonderful work. And so, yeah, it's a very interesting ecosystem out there. And fungi are a major part of it. And there's been, you mentioned lion's mane before, and there's certain types of mushroom which seem to be getting very popular now. So lion's mane, is it rishi? I forget. There's another rishi, yeah. yeah. And there's a couple of others which I can't recall that are often, if you listen to many sort of like health podcasts or so on, they often mention some of the, these mushrooms. Hey, let me go through a few of them and just talk about the benefits of each one. Have, first of all, let me just ask you, have you ever been to a mushroom farm? No. I think one in a hundred people I asked that have said, oh yeah, I've been to a mushroom farm. The reason is generally because they're all being grown indoors. Right. So you can drive right by a mushroom farm and not even know what's going on. It's not like looking out into a field of corn or wheat or something like that. So it's the, mm -hmm. wow, how do, you know, what's going on here stuff. But have you ever seen a reishi mushroom? I'm not sure. I don't know. Reishi mushroom is got a cap, like a ram's horn. It's a beautiful spiral type of cap. It's red. It's woody. You don't eat reishi mushrooms. You make them into a tea. They're mm. very bitter, but it's one of the premier 
functional mushrooms out there. And it's one of the highest in the compounds that have the immunological properties, which is the, the beta-glucans. And it also has compounds in it called triterpenoids. The triterpenoids are very good for the liver, our circulatory system, and then the beta-glucans are, and the beta-glucans are shared by all of the mushrooms. They make up 50% of the cell walls. The beta-glucans are what give mushrooms their immunological properties. And it's really interesting because the research, scientific research out there on beta-glucans has shown us a couple things, one of which we actually have a receptor in our lower intestines for beta-glucans specifically. So Mm -hmm. whether we eat mushrooms or supplement with them, they will hit those receptor sites and then they will potentiate cytokines and basically immune cells. So whether it be macrophages or T cells or NK cells, they will potentiate those when they are needed. So that's one of the things about functional mushrooms in general is I look at them for prevention, for preventive medicine. And this, my basically, my basic philosophy on health is diet is our foundation. Mm-hmm. We have to have a good diet to be healthy. Just yeah. no way around it. There's other things, obviously. There's exercise, there's fresh air, clean water, all of these things. But diet, if you have a bad diet, you're going to be facing a lot of illness in your life. Mushrooms are part of prevention and they're sitting in the background. So when you're consuming mushrooms, that's just a way that you can help prevent disease. And if you get, let's just say you're you have a virus or something else, they're going to be there helping you to meet that challenge. And Tony, that's the other thing for me about health in general. I think too often people talk about fighting this and fighting that. And North America, they love war metaphors. I don't. Uh, I look at it as a challenge. We meet the challenge because ultimately we are all cooperating to some degree and there's some competition there as well but we're all part of the same larger organism the natural world we have to eat things out of the natural world we're out there breathing in the air in the natural world people don't know this but the air if you actually would sample the air on a petri dish or something there are so many spores and bacteria, and you name it, that we're breathing in all the time. It's just part of life. Nobody should think of life as living in a bubble, and we have to be like sterilizing everything. No, you would not live that way. So mushrooms are part of prevention. I consider them a basic food that we need for that. Reishi mushroom will be there helping to potentiate your immune system. And also it has these triterpenoids, which are very bitter compounds. Most of what we call functional mushrooms, and we basically have identified 10 
that we think are the most important. And I've done that by looking at traditional Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. What are they using? How long have they used it? Are they still using it? And then I will go out into the scientific literature and say, is there any scientific basis and backing for what this traditional Chinese medicine has told us? Put those two together, and then we've got 10 mushrooms that we focus on. So reishi is really one of the best, and I consider it like one of the top of the functional, maybe the top. If somebody said, what's the, if I should take one, I just say, take reishi. One that's similar to reishi is what's called turkey tail. Turkey tail is also one that you do not eat. It's not an edible mushroom. You'd put it in a tea. And it also is a very good mushroom for immunological potentiation. And it it has actually been developed into a drug product in Japan called PSK. And in China, they have a similar one where they've, they have basically grown this out, concentrated it, fractionated it into a more concentrated form. And in Japan, they use it as an adjunct therapy for things like cancer, that type of thing. So these mushrooms have very powerful compounds in, the, in them. So you mentioned about the 10 that you've narrowed that list down to 10. Could you mention the other eight? You just told us about two of them. Could you mention the other Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll mention them specifically right now, and then we can delve into each one individually. Um, Now, I'll start with the ones that are actually edible. Right. So if you see them in the marketplace, grab them. Number one after reishi would be, and I'm just going to list them, not in any particular order, a shiitake mushrooms. Right. Fabulous. Edible. Maitake mm-hmm. mushroom, lion's mane, cordyceps. I talked about turkey tail, uh, tremella, and the final one would be felinus. A- and some of these are what we'd call fleshy fungi that you can eat. Others, like reishi, are hard woody grow off of trees and they are if you're just using them yourself you would make a tea out of them with all of these particular mushrooms what we do is we will extract them and ultimately make a very fine powder from that extraction and that extraction could be what we call a one-to-one where it's where it keeps all of the Everything there that we are extracting, including the fiber, we'll, we'll maintain. And then in some cases, we'll make extracts that are potency of, let's say, eight kilos of dried mushrooms down into one kilo of mushroom extract powder. And of course, we have to filter all the fiber out to create that one kilo. So we will make those two different extract types, what we would then ultimately sell. Shiitake and maitake, lots of great science behind the immunological benefits. And so much of the science, and this is what's interesting, so much of the science are all, scientists are all interested in finding specific compounds because they're interested mostly in is there a pharmaceutical here that we can get into? Mm-hmm. We don't go that way because we're interested in the whole 
herb, the whole mushroom. We want everything in there because we feel like that's more important. But science and pharmaceutical companies, they're out there. They're fractionating everything, trying to – and then they'll take one individual compound and they'll run a bunch of tests with that. Nope, not good enough. Nope, nope, nope. Oh, this one looks interesting. Let's go further with this. So this is the same thing that has happened with all of these different mushrooms. Scientists Mm -hmm. are in there. What is the real active there? Of course, on a more macro level, it's the beta-glucans. Then with reishi, it's the triterpenoids. So there are these compounds. Have you ever heard of ergothionine? Then it sounds familiar, yeah. It's a sound that mushrooms are one of the few foods that produces them in reasonable quantities. And what's interesting is we do not manufacture ergothionine, and yet they find it in different parts of our body. And they're going, what's it doing there? What's its function? They're Mm -hmm. not quite sure, but they think of it as a very powerful antioxidant because it's in areas of high oxidative stress. But this is something I think that Moving forward, we'll hear a lot more about and how important this is. It's very much another compound called glutathione, which more people are probably aware of. But this is something that's in mushrooms, this ergothionine. We test for that. So shiitake and maitake, very good immunological properties. Lion's mane has shown properties to enhance cognition. Now, these days, are you familiar at all with what are called nootropics? Lion's mane is a star (laughs) in the nootropics area. Yeah, yeah. Why it has these compounds that stimulate what's called nerve growth factor. And nerve growth factor organizes and promote the manufacture of neurons. And that's an ongoing process. Uh, But as you get older you start to lose your ability to produce this on the same level as when you're younger. So in Japan, they did some really interesting studies on lion's mane where they had two groups of people, 30 in each group. One was a control group. These were older people. They gave them a whole battery of tests to start off. One group then got three grams of lion's mane mushroom per day. The other one just, again, the placebo. After 120 days, they gave them tests again, and the group that was taking the lion's mane showed better scores than the placebo group. So they speculated that, okay, this has shown an effect on cognition Mm -hmm. and memory. And then the group that was taking the lion's mane stopped taking it. After 30 days, they tested the two groups again. Both groups were down to baseline. Which was an interesting finding. So they've done a number of uh, trials with lion's mane that seems to show that there are certain benefits for cognition, for memory. And look, I am not going to say, oh, they will definitely help your memory or anything like that. I don't really make claims for Mm. our products. I just basically try to relate the scientific information that's out there, the tests that they've done. Some tests are good. Some tests are not good. Sometimes scientific tests are skewed one way or another and how they write it up will make a difference. You really have to look very close. Who is it that sponsored the test? It's interesting, Tony, because a lot of the scientific 
tests into mushrooms that they've done in Japan are sponsored by the shiitake mushroom growers of Japan, the maitake mushroom growers of Japan. Okay. As long as I know that, that's important. And so I can look at the tests and I can base some of my decisions knowing that fact. So maitake and shiitake, I think the science is pretty good. They're delicious. Why not put them into your diet? Or if you feel like supplementing, fine. Mm. supplement with them. Another mushroom, which I might not have mentioned, have you ever heard of cordyceps? Yeah, yeah. Again, another one that's been very popular recently, isn't it? Cordyceps traditionally is wildcrafted up in the foothills of Tibet. And in season, people go out on their hands and knees trying to find this. And what it is, it's called caterpillar fungus. Because this small little cordyceps grows off a caterpillar. This caterpillar hibernates. While it's hibernating, it doesn't know this, but there are spores of this fungus in the ground where it hibernates. These spores germinate. They get inside the caterpillar. They consume it completely. And then in the summertime, it puts up a little small, that doesn't look like a a regular mushroom. It looks like a blade of grass. They call it winter worm, summer grass. This has become so popular in China that they can sell it for $15,000 a dried kilogram. Wow. So cordyceps has been traditionally used for fatigue. You get tired. You can't get out of an illness. They'll give you cordyceps. Now, In the supplement market, they use it for athletes like to use cordyceps for workouts or anything like that. Is it going to give you this extra boost? I can't say whether it will or not. People could try it out. Think, And one of the things, let me just say this about a lot of supplements. It's not going to do anything for you tomorrow or the next day. It's not, oh, I've got a cold coming on. I'm going to take this mushroom supplement. A lot of people are thinking in terms of I want this ibuprofen. It will make my aches and pains go away in an hour. That's not how they work. We've been talking about the sort of medicinal properties and, and so on, the benefits. And one of the things that has been a lot more, there seems to have been a change of stance, certainly in the UK and the US and many other countries, on some of the kind of hallucinogenic mushrooms like psilocybin and, and so on. And they're... They had a very negative image for in the 60s and 70s, like Timothy Leary and people like that. But now there seems to be a different take on them. It, it seems to be people are being a bit, a bit more open-minded again to, to some of those things. As a child of the 60s, I saw that up close and personal because mm. there was a prohibition. You know, just there was a prohibition on cannabis since uh, 1937 there was a prohibition on cannabis. And so my generation was and have seen this prohibition right from the very beginning. As Mm. we came of age, I have friends that have been in jail for cannabis and growing these psychoactive mushrooms. So it's a very real thing. And today, fortunately, this prohibition started with cannabis, first using it medicinally, and now 
recreationally. It's fine. It's completely legal now in Canada. What's going on in the UK? What's wrong over there? It's funny. They still have the prohibition on it. I don't get it. Is Canada really leading the way on this for you guys? <laughs> and look, when I was there, I told you I was in the UK back in the late 60s, 1968, great music. We bought some hash while we were there and it was wonderful and, and was enhanced our experience when we we're out listening to all these great bands that you had there. But I think we find what it takes generations to just die and go away right. because people, a lot of it, I think was the prohibition was against the counterculture. It was like who are these people? Look at the way they dress. Look at their long hair. They're smoking pot instead of drinking. We're going to make everything illegal that they do, and we're going to persecute them. Not only that, they're anti-war. What's going on? So we faced that in the 60s, and now with those generations being gone and new thinking, people have gone, there's benefits and cannabis is now legal in, a, in many states in the United States. And now they're looking at psychoactive plants and mushrooms, especially for use in addiction issues, mental health issues, yeah. end of life issues. And this is like Research has started up again that was completely shut down mm -hmm. in the 60s. And it's amazing to think that it's taken 50 years. But the prohibition itself, I, I would say, started in 1937. So it's been 80 years, really, of this prohibition. And instead, what did they do? They allowed drugs like alcohol, drugs, tobacco <laughs> out there, legal Killing mm. people, creating yeah. havoc in many ways. Mm. All of the issues in terms of alcohol abuse, unbelievable. So mm. I look at this as a very good sign. And here in British Columbia, psychiatrists, psychologists, physicians, they can now get a license from Health Canada to actually utilize mushrooms in their practice. So mm. I heard a presentation six months ago by a practitioner here in British Columbia talking about the uh, some of his patients that he'd been using mushrooms with and the benefits that he's seen from that. So this is something very real and I'm hoping that this will continue. And, and to some degree, it's funny, to some degree, Canada leads the way in certain areas and others, it's still way behind. Mm -hmm. So I consider it really positive. Have you ever had any experiences? No, it's something I've, I'm interested to try, but it's not readily available, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure if you looked hard enough, you could find people there. The other thing too, is these mushrooms grow wild in in the UK. There's certain species, again, you have to have the right person identifying them. But let me tell you, in the world today, there are tens of thousands of tons of these psychoactive mushrooms being produced mm. every year, just unlimited quantities. So they're readily available, certainly in North America, not hard to find. Now, 
we're slowly moving to a point, I think, in Canada and in the U.S. There's one state in the U.S. that has legalized psychoactive plants. That would be Oregon. They passed a law on that. I think maybe uh, Colorado or Denver might have a similar law where they have legalized the use of mushrooms, psychoactive mushrooms. I think we're on the right track. People know a lot more. One of the things about it, Tony, is that back in the 60s, we did not have guides. And you know what happens when you make something illegal? You push it underground and then people can't advertise, hey, I'm a guide. I'll help you. Mm-hmm. We didn't have guides. So there was use, there was abuse. And for better, for worse, a lot of people did have the experience and most of it was very positive. Mm-hmm. And that I think ultimately was just part of the path we've been on now all of this time. And finally, it's starting to become more mainstream And I'm excited and I hope that this does carry on because I think psychoactive mushrooms have a real role to play and can be very, very beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned about how beneficial they are for depression and mental health and so many other areas. So it it definitely, yeah, it's encouraging to see how many different studies are taking place now around all of that. And I think... To me, one of the big issues is that the amount of pharmaceuticals that are being prescribed for depression, for various mental issues, the amount of pharmaceuticals that are utilized in the, starting sometimes with children at age five and six. Oh, your child's got a little bit of an issue. If we just give him this drug every day, he'll sit quietly in class. I'm shocked at that. And that's one of the reasons why I'm in or on this side of all of that. I do not take any pharmaceuticals myself. Mm-hmm. I There is a role for some of them, like antibiotics, mm-hmm. but so many of them I think are doing more damage than good. And right now, pharmaceutical companies have got way too much power. They have way too much influence. They spend millions of dollars on politicians and their campaigns. Mm. It's very corrupt. Yeah, absolutely. Time's pressing on. There's a question I always ask all of my guests, and I've crimed you for this already. Is there a book that's moved you in any way that comes to mind? One of the books that I read back in the 60s, which for me was a very important book and resonated so deeply, and it was a book called Island by Aldous Huxley. Oh, yeah. And the theme of it was to some degree a ideal. It was, look what we could have if we organized our society in a different way. Mm. And one of the interesting parts about it was that when children reached the age of 18, they had a coming-of-age ceremony where they actually used psychoactive mushrooms. Right. So generally speaking, that book, I highly recommend it to anybody. It was just such a wonderful look into 
what could be. And the whole thing was based around getting back to the natural world. Today, people are just alienated from the natural world. Mm -hmm. People who live in cities have to go out and take a tour to see how their food is grown. It's Mm -hmm. the detachment. And I think that leads to tremendous alienation. And with this digital society and digital world bearing down on us, which has many benefits like what we're doing right now, but it also has a lot of downsides like all of the zombies out there with their face and their phone everywhere they go. So yes, Island, highly recommend that book. And, and if, if people want to find out more about you and your products and social media and so on, where would they go? Namex.com, N-A-M-E-X.com is our website. We actually have a menu there that's education, and I've got a lot of super educational materials, including slideshows, how we grow our mushrooms, how we process them. So there's a ton of information there. And then we have a retail site where we sell direct-to-consumer over the internet, and that is realmushrooms.com. Realmushrooms.com also has a lot of really good information. So if you want to learn more, please come to those two sites and look at the educational materials there because we've got a lot of it and it's really great content. And you mentioned real mushroom site. Could people in the UK buy them? and Would they still be fresh by the time they got here? Or how's the situation? Well, certainly. And remember, we're not selling fresh mushrooms, right? We're selling essentially mushroom extract powders. And in many cases, they're a supplement in capsules. So that's what's being sold. And I know that real mushrooms now, I'm pretty sure you can get them on Amazon UK. The other site that does a lot of worldwide sales is iHerb.com. That's a good one as well. We sell it off the website, but we don't sell it internationally from the Real Mushrooms website. That's just difficult. Okay. Finally, Jeff, is there a quotation that particularly resonates that you like? Yeah, there, there are many. One, I would always say, and this comes from the 60s as somebody that grew up during a war that we all protested, and that is question authority. Very important. And then let me leave you with an ancient Chinese poem. This is like a Zen koan. It's something that relates to mushrooms, but I find it so interesting. So here it is. Without leaves, without buds, without flowers yet they form fruit as a food, as a tonic, as a medicine, the entire creation is precious. And do you know who said that? I don't. It, I found it and all they know is it's an ancient (laughs) Chinese poem. Yeah, it's beautiful though, because Mm. they're talking about a mushroom as no leaves, no buds, no flowers, and yet it forms a fruit, a fruiting body. And you're like, food, tonic, and medicine. It's just, yeah, it's really an interesting poem. And to me, it describes something that is, I love this, the last one, the entire creation is precious. And that's the way I just think of nature in general. Jeff, I really appreciate 
how much you've informed us about mushrooms and the whole area around mushrooms. It's been really informative. So thank you very much. You're very welcome, Tony. It's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Lovely. Thanks, Jeff. Next week is episode 79 with Gavin Andrews, who is the managing director for HeartMath in the UK and Ireland. HeartMath is a system of breathwork self-regulation techniques and biofeedback technology. And we're going to learn a lot more about what is coherent breathing and how does it help people in many different ways around their health. So that's next week, Gavin Andrews, episode 79. And if you know anyone who gets some real benefits from mushrooms and some of the discussion we've had today with Jeff Chilton, please do share the episode with them. And I hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning into the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.